You're listening to Mornings with Eric and Bridget right here on Moody Radio 89.3. Someone once said, true revival begins when we want more of Jesus than we have. What seems to have started at Asbury University has spread to other campuses, including Cedarville University. And that's where we find Dr. Matthew Bennett, who's professor there of missions and theology, spent several years on the mission field and is using that perspective in his new book, Hope for American Evangelicals, a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. Dr. Bennett, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, This book might be for such a time as this, I would say. Uh, What does the word hope and what you're experiencing on that campus right now, how do those two connect? Hmm. No, and I think that's probably the word that I would characterize uh, my disposition as I look at students who are pouring out to uh, spend time in prayer, spend time reading the word, confessing sin, and singing praise back to God, and then deploying for ministry, intentionally going out to share the gospel. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about what do we label this? Do we do we see this as revival? And I guess for me, I'm less interested in giving it a label at this point as much as just celebrating that some of the ordinary means of grace seem to be leading to an increased fervor, both to repent and walk out the gospel in this community, and then also to hold it out to those who have yet to hear. So I'm I'm hopeful that <laughs> this is something that is normative and to be expected uh, as the Spirit of God moves in the ways that He does through those ordinary means of grace. Yeah. What does that look like on the campus of Cedarville University today? Hmm. Well, uh, we've definitely seen an increased sense of students who have been using their free time to gather in prayer, uh, sometimes in the chapel, sometimes in smaller groups. Um, And uh, even just as, you know, we've seen Brothers and sisters, uh, not too far away from us at Asbury and other uh, other college campuses, who are uh, gathering together in in similar ways um, mm-hmm. to praise the Lord, to confess sins, and and to consider the gospel and its expectations on our life. I think one of the more exciting things for me is um, seeing that there are significant numbers of students who are saying we can't just stay here in this place, but we've got to go to other places where the gospel hasn't been proclaimed. And I think we had something like 600 students leave campus and go to various places, including Michigan State, um, just to be there and be ready to minister gospel hope to a campus that's that's hurting in the wake of a recent tragedy up there. Wow. What would you say to somebody, and this is, I've heard this from people who haven't been around, but there's skepticism that this is kind of a manufactured outcome from somebody's plan of something. I'm not sure where that, how that came about, but that's one of the things I've been hearing. Sure. And that's where, I mean, there's always a level of skepticism that, that I think can be healthy in these things that can cause us not to jump to labeling something uh, like revival. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a healthy skepticism about emotionalism, but I think there should also be a skepticism about emotionless faith. And so what I'm seeing is not students who are overwhelmed or overcome by anything abnormal, but simply seem to be fervently attuned to, like I said, some of those common things of rehearsing the gospel to one another, singing back praise to the Lord, praying, confessing, and then sensing an urgency to go out and share this good news. And so I, 
I don't want to dampen the enthusiasm that rightly should come with the gospel. And mm. at the core of it, what I'm seeing is something that strikes me as, as healthy and hopeful. Well, that must do your heart so well, because you spent so many years on the mission field, bringing the gospel to places where it's not well known. But now you're taking a look at the American church and you're saying there's there's hope here, but we do need to bring attention to some parts of our house that may be broken. Talk to us first about this metaphor of the church as a house. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the sustained metaphor that I use throughout the book is uh, kind of imagining what it was like to walk with me uh, as I returned to my childhood home after having been away at college for six years or so, uh, coming back to this space, not in order to live there, but rather to help my mom prepare it for sale. And realizing that though the space was formative for my uh, upbringing, it was home in every way for me. And there's all sorts of nostalgia that comes with that physical space. When you come back, having been uh, away for a time, and then you're wearing different spectacles to look at it uh, through the eyes of a potential buyer, all of a sudden things stand out to you that uh, maybe you didn't notice or you overlooked or had just simply accommodated some of your habits to functioning in a space that may not be fully ideal. And so I use that metaphor throughout the book to consider even what it was like for us to come back off the mission field, um, having been away for some pretty substantial years from 2011 to 2017, where a lot of things have changed in the cultural landscape of the United States, and a lot of things even within evangelical churches have come to the surface as, uh, as perhaps in need of deeper inspection. And my desire in this book is to come back with fresh eyes, particularly with eyes that have been developing reflexes of seeing things uh, as a missionary would, trying to show the gospel for as beautiful as it can be um, to people who have not yet seen it as such. Um, and, And to look at the American church, recognizing some of the places where maybe we have some uh, some need of deeper inspection, but also wanting to say there's still hope for this. I think in some of my interactions with peers, um, looking at the brokenness that evangelicalism has exhibited has caused them to lose hope and to abandon the project altogether. But I want to say, no, 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 it's, it's built on good foundations theologically and missionally, and, and there is hope for restoration. As I look through the different chapters that you have here, maybe I've missed something, but you don't focus on the roof or the foundation. What 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 are those? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the uh, the metaphor obviously will break down at some point. The foundation, <laughs> though, <laughs> the foundation I think is very clearly something that is the the firm foundation of Christ and the gospel and the biblical testimony of what this world is and what it is for and the God who has created it, who has authority over it, and who calls us by His grace and mercy to be restored to a relationship with Him. So the foundation is firm, um, and the studs of evangelicalism, Mm. traditionally kind of thought of as, you know, a Bible-centered expression of Christianity, something that is focused on the cross of Christ as the means of being restored to a relationship with the God whose image we bear, that personal conversion is a necessary thing where somebody who is an alien and stranger far off from God is brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, 
and personal faith is the means by which they do that. And then finally, the idea that faith should lead to an active outworking of sanctification and mission. Um, Those are good studs on which to make sure that we can refurbish the house without having to raise it. so as far as the, the roof, I'm, I'm not sure what I <laughs> label the roof. All right. Well, let's go into that house. By the way, we are talking with Dr. Matthew Bennett, author of Hope for American Evangelicals. Going into the house here, you talk about our dining room reflecting our ethnic diversity. That's a, a good proof of the gospel's truth, that it's reaching mm-hmm. every tribe, nation, and tongue. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's so important in what are divisive conversations around race issues and racial tensions that are prevalent in today's day and age. Um, I mean, there's, there's lots of distracting elements, I think, to this conversation, you know, in terms of what sociological theories you might appeal to and how that's going to affect your perspective. And it seems like within the church, we have some who have dedicated themselves to, uh, using some of these sociological extra-biblical approaches, others who have dedicated themselves to fighting those approaches. And I want to argue that if we take our, take our gospel lenses and look at these issues, we actually, as the church of anyone in, in the world, have a compelling reason to actually fight for uh, racial unity and a, um, an uncommon unity that exhibits diversity. Because what we're saying, the world identifies racism and some of the the tensions as problems, but the world, apart from some underlying compelling reason to say that we have some fundamental sameness, the world is left to try to hope that they can create or make a unity, whereas the church's message is that when people are grafted into the one vine of Christ and adopted into the one family of God— We have a fundamental, deep unity that we're actually working to manifest. And so it's the church that actually has confidence that this project of moving towards unity is possible. And as we do that, a watching world that's identified brokenness as something they may or may not label as sin, but certainly something they'd recognize as evil, the church being able to come together in a diverse unity is actually an exhibition of the beauty and the compelling nature of the gospel that transcends some of these otherwise uh, divisive elements of our, uh, of our culture. Now, how many times have we had a meal and we said, you know what, this is a good conversation. Let's take it into the living room. And that's kind of where we go now, where we talk about a problem with theology, right? Yeah, yeah. I think there is a tendency in the church, and and I want to affirm the importance of doctrine all throughout this, um, but there is a tendency in the church, especially these days with things like social media, where you can launch an attack on someone's ideas from a distance without any context. There's a tendency for us to become so attuned to policing someone's doctrine in secondary and, and tertiary issues that we start anathematizing people for certain views that they hold. And we do so not in order to win a brother or to come to a clearer understanding necessarily of biblical teaching, but simply to reinforce some of the tribes that we belong to. And I think the thing is, we do this uh, 
via social media in a way that we don't even pay attention to the fact that the world is watching us. Mm-hmm. And so our, the, the analogy I use is in my living room, going into that place uh, as a returnee to, to the space, you know, I, I understood that to be the place where our family let our hair down. And, you know, it was an intimate space of, of privacy and, and family life. But then when I went back into it, I realized that two of the walls are, are windows without any window treatments. And so people walking by on the street were privy to all the things that my family was doing. And I thought about some of the embarrassing moments and, and maybe even ugly moments that people could have witnessed. And I tried to compare that to what we're putting on display in some of our public um, yeah, our, our public angry displays at mm-hmm. brothers and sisters from other tribes on issues that are not necessarily gospel level in issues um, and the ways that we treat one another sometimes are, are actually discrediting the gospel that we would otherwise proclaim and hold out. Mm. Such a warning for all of us. Well, you also talk about our yard and how there's sometimes a difference between a manicured ministry and a missional ministry. Talk to us about this aspect. Yeah. So the the imagery in the yard is uh, going into the the backyard and realizing that it had all the potential to be a nicely manicured space that would have lots of curb appeal and would be really beautiful and filled with flowers and things like that, but really would fight against some of the usefulness of it. And my parents, instead of manicuring the backyard, intentionally kind of made it uglier by putting a big cement slab in the back and dropping a rusty pole and a basketball hoop in there because they knew that my unlikely sports dreams uh, would be played out on some of those practice spaces and that that was going to actually lead to opportunities for my dad and I to relate. And so we spent countless hours playing basketball in the backyard and in between games, him pouring into me and discipling me in this life-on-life, informal, but intentional and directly relational sort of way. And I think sometimes in our churches, we, uh, we have either grown to such a size that things like efficiencies and programs are easier to use to measure how successful we're being in discipling people than watching the Spirit bring about maturity um, because we are close to people. And I think some of the, the branding, some of the, uh, the, the curb appeal that we're after with our, our logos for a church or our using a, a program and checking boxes as to who has made their way through a program, sometimes that has convinced us that we have discipled people when, in fact, maybe we've actually been pushed farther from meaningful life-on-life relationship with them. And I'm not, I'm not against programs. I think programs are very helpful, but I want all of our programs to be something that actually push us towards relationship and towards a meaningful, embodied way of discipling people within the church rather than just clicking them through a program uh, as if it's a, a curriculum to be completed. We just have a second left here, but I think it's important for us to understand throughout all this conversation that Christ didn't die to purchase a house. He died to purchase a people, right? And that's why the address is so important that it it Mm -hmm. isn't... it, it doesn't matter where my house is or what denomination my house is or all those other things, right? It matters who I am. 
Yeah. And I think in that one in particular, uh, what we're looking at is um, what what kingdom do we most find our allegiance given to? Where is our primary address? Are we citizens of a kingdom that is uh, born on my passport cover? Or are we primarily operating under one who's given us total authority to uh, to stand for the gospel and trying to make sure that our, our primary allegiances are not necessarily shaded by our contemporary political binaries, but rather are primarily seeking to live out the calling that sometimes cuts across both uh, both of the false binaries that were presented in our contemporary political system and trying to make sure that we we don't find uh, we don't find our primary allegiance being given to a uh, a, a party um, but rather to a king. Mm. Hope for American Evangelicals, a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. It's by Dr. Matthew Bennett, who we've been speaking to today. We've got a link to it at ericandbridget.org. So did you sell the house at the end? Was it all good? But we sold the house. That is the one <laughs> breakdown of the metaphor is that in this case, I'm not looking to sell evangelicalism, but rather to uh, invite more people in. Yeah. Oh, good, there you good. go. And this book is going to help us with that perspective. Again, we've got more info at ericandbridget.org. 